it's it's up to you you can you can leave and i can look at uh the tabernacle that's fine i'm fine with that so like bill said my name is krista um i live in san diego i actually just moved to california in june and lived most of my life in louisiana and when i was in louisiana one of my jobs i had many but one of them was uh working at louisiana right to life and working at a right to life chapter was really awesome because i got to meet with a lot of people um, mostly in the state but i did a little bit of national work and and education as well and i got to meet people at tabling at pro-life events and people would just share their stories with me. I think one thing about being pro-life and being actively pro-life is that you have an openness about you. People feel comfortable to share their story with you because they, they can see that you um, love life and love people. Uh, hopefully that's what they can see. Um, and in my case, a lot of people were, would open up and share their stories. So before I, I share my story, I, I want to tell you this one that really um, drives it home for me. And it's a story about this woman who came into this country to get a better life for herself. And it was a huge sacrifice for her family. She was the oldest of her siblings. And um, so she came to America hoping for a better life for her and for her family. And really, she was supposed to help send money back home for her younger siblings. And when she was 26 years old, she got pregnant. And um, because the father wasn't really ready for that, um, he kind of brought up abortion and he put that on the table. Um, and that was kind of a difficult conversation for them. And um, so she kind of reached out to her family back home. And this was before the Internet. So um, snail mail, <laughs> she would send letters to her family back home and uh, including pictures of herself pregnant. Whenever she was looking for compassion, she only got judgment and her family sent back those pictures with X's on her stomach or ripped up. So she had a decision to make and it was, it was really hard. And when I think about that time, um, Planned Parenthood, the number one abortion provider in the world, not just in the U.S., in the world, they had this campaign saying, every child a wanted child. And when I think about the myth, which it is a myth, the myth of an unwanted child, that's who this kid was. This kid's father didn't want them and neither did the grandparents. If the whole circle of influence of this woman who was who had only one choice, right, uh, either abortion or life, her circle of influence said to choose abortion, it was very hard. Um, and when I, when I see the pro-life movement, a lot of times people think like, I don't know how people could choose that. And it's, it's very judgmental. But if you can imagine being this woman who is an immigrant, who has no body, English is not her first language, she still chose life. Um, and that woman was my mom and that baby was me. And my mom chose life for me and that was such a blessing. And I never knew any of that, by the way. Until I was 18 years old, uh, my mom told me the thing about the letters and the X's on her stomach, um, and that was kind of a hard reality, and I never really put the word abortion to it until I was maybe 24, and I was applying for a job at Louisiana Right to Life. They asked me, why do you want to talk about abortion? Why do you want to educate? It was a youth education or youth programs position, and I would be giving talks um, all over the state and hosting youth leadership camps for the kids of Louisiana. In that interview, I started crying <laughs> in the interview and I was like, I, I think that I have a pro-life story and I think I'm supposed to share it. I had previously been involved in Catholic ministry and I love being Catholic and I love my faith, but it was a weird transition to go into secular pro-life 
education. I kind of shared that I had no background in the pro-life movement. Um, a lot of my coworkers at Louisiana Right to Life had master's degrees and they were just so educated and they were so able to talk about this issue intellectually and I found them so smart and I was like, I just want to love people. I don't, I don't know if I can do this. And I felt very intimidated to even go for the job. But I ended up getting that job and working alongside this wonderful, wonderful person named Alex Sagers. She was my co-director located in New Orleans. I was located in Lafayette and we kind of split the state in half and had the same job. Her friendship in the pro-life movement meant the world to me. We both had very similar backgrounds. We were um, the oldest of all girls and um, very conservative and Catholic families. We were really exploring what it meant to be Catholic but pro-life also in the world. And, and our education, like the way that we educated ourselves, shaped the way that we talked about the issue. Bill was talking about how to talk about um, abortion through science and philosophy, and that was uh, really a huge part, especially on college campuses. Um, but even high schoolers, like the way that they talk about abortion is so, compassion was a huge part of our curriculum. And we talked about non-judgment and, and being able to look at somebody. Um, I mean, the title of this event, Envision Life, which I really love, is all about how to how do we envision life how do we look at life a few years ago i actually mentioned that when when telling my story i was talking about um the lens at like what i wear glasses normally but not today but the lens that we look through to see the world and hopefully hopefully our lens is a pro-life lens or a life-affirming lens and that should be the catholic lens the way that we look at the world but that doesn't mean that that's how our education has to be and i think a lot of people conflate our faith and being pro-life and it can be really exclusive sometimes in vision life i love the title of this of this event so i want to fast forward a little bit like as i was walking working at louisiana right to life i was discovering um, my story of origin is how i usually call it. I really never knew my dad's side of the story. Now, my biological father, I, I never knew um, until I was 22 years old. So it was my senior year of college, and we kind of started forming a relationship. Um, and it was very hard, very, very hard. I had to give a lot of forgiveness and not hold resentment. Um, and it was really, really hard for me. If you can imagine going 22 years of your life not knowing your biological father, that's um, where I was at for a long time. As we were developing a relationship when I was at Louisiana Rights to Life, I was always telling my mom's side of the story. Um, one day, I was my mom lived in Vegas for a time, and I was visiting her, and he came in from California, where I was born, and he was it took me to lunch or something, breakfast. It was uh, We were at IHOP. It was breakfast. I was talking to him, and I remember asking, hey, are you, are you glad that I wasn't aborted? And I didn't realize, like, that was such a big question to ask over pancakes, right? But I, I asked him that. I was, I said, are you glad that I wasn't aborted? And he started crying. And he said, of course, sweetie, of course. I can't imagine how women feel um, because men hurt too. And he just kept saying that phrase, like men hurt too. And he said like, you know, that he had an abortion. He was post-abortive. And my training, you know, my education, everything that I had done at that point pointed to, okay, respond with compassion right here in this moment. And I, I gave him like websites and books to read. And I, I tried everything, everything that I could think of. I gave him those resources because I knew how to do that because I was in the pro-life movement for two years already. So I, I gave him all the resources at hand. He brought me to the airport. I was flying home to Louisiana. On the plane, I remember sitting like on the tarmac or whatever, like right before we're taking off. It's like accelerating and speeding up and going into the air like an airplane does you know what an airplane does I started weeping like I was in the middle seat and I was weeping and I was just like hyperventilating a little bit and I was really glad that nobody looked at me and was like 
have you never flown before? Because that's the kind of reaction I was having, like I was having flight anxiety. But really, I was coming to the realization that I lost a sibling to abortion. I was coming to the realization that that could have been me. And I, I started to have these um, existential feelings. And what I mean by that is um, guilt, survivor's guilt. A lot of us know that term probably from like the military and um, that's kind of correlated with PTSD. That is, all of these things are very common for people who have siblings lost to abortion. So I went to Given, like I said at the beginning, this conference in 2019, I had just retired from the pro-life movement, from Louisiana Right to Life. It was just so difficult to give 70 talks a, a year, um, especially describing in detail abortion methods. That just got too too hard for me, especially at the rate that I was doing it, like 70 talks a year. I was, I was like traumatized by it, basically, because I'm <laughs> talking about these gruesome methods at which people are dying worldwide, including my sibling including my sibling. And uh, I just I just needed to stop. So I was recently retired when I went to Given with this action plan saying there is a need for people who have siblings who are lost to abortion. Um, and I went to Rachel's Vineyard. Some of you might know about Rachel's Vineyard. It's a post-abortive healing retreat uh, for women and, and parents and grandparents who are people who are involved in the abortion process, abortion decision process. And I went to it and it wasn't, it wasn't quite what I needed. It was good enough at the time, but it wasn't quite what I needed. And um, I, I tried my best. I was definitely struggling with depression. Um, I remember like distinctly not smiling or laughing for many months. Um, one of my best friends, still to this day, Jenna, um, I don't know if she's watching, but um, Jenna, the first time she heard me laugh in like 10 months. I remember I laughed at something. She's very silly. So I laughed about something and she said, wow, <laughs> I can't remember the last time you laughed. And I couldn't either. I also couldn't remember the last time I laughed. And it was very, I was going through a very hard time. It was the darkest moment of my life, darker than any breakup that I've ever been through, romantic or friendship, darker than the time that my parents got divorced in college. And any time that I've felt abandoned, even being abandoned by my biological father, all of those weren't as bad or harmful or painful as the time that I found out about my aborted sibling. And it was really the first time in my life. I'm a very faithful person. The Lord has done a lot in my life. But when I found out about my aborted sibling, I didn't know if he could bring me out of that. And I asked him often, can you, can you even bring me out of this? Can I ever feel better about this? Um, and I'm crying right now thinking about it because it was just really such a dark time. Um, anyway, so I went to Given and presented this this action plan. I don't even think it had a name yet at the time. I, at the same time, I also started my master's program at Divine Mercy University, which is actually closer to y'all in Sterling, Virginia, I think. When I started going to this program, the cool thing about our program is that we have to do a capstone project. And the capstone project is basically like an action plan of Given. I'm basically doing lots of research about the experience of having an aborted sibling, the depressive symptoms, um, the existential symptoms, the survivor's guilt, the, even the PTSD, all of that is aligned with what the research says for people who lost a sibling to abortion. And I, I'd like to share one very interesting piece of research with you, with you, if that's okay. And that is 
kind of the PTSD element and a little bit the survivor's guilt. So there's this little anecdote, anecdote that Dr. Philip Nay, he came up with it in like 2010, just to kind of illustrate the story. Because sometimes people hear my story and they, they feel the same way about their sibling that they lost to miscarriage. I love that people can, can understand the value of the unborn life through those moments sometimes, but I will share that there, there are some differences. The anecdote goes like this. The first story is um, there's a family that go to a beach and they're on this cliffside, family of four, two kids, and the parents are standing along the cliffside and one of the children falls over. And the, the surviving child um, feels sad and the parents are also sad, but at the end of the day, that child can move on from life and, and feel that they can flourish and they have this mentality like life happens sometimes and even though it's tragic, and so sad, the surviving child can move on to some degree, like it doesn't affect their daily life. And that would be like a miscarriage. It's kind of this reality that you can live with because sometimes it just is that way sometimes. And I know it's a tragedy and I'm not trying to um, devalue anyone's suffering at all. The other kind of side of the coin is if that another family of four goes to the beach and they're on the cliffside, an abortion is like the two parents kind of look at each other and they see their children play on the cliffside and say, you know, we really only wanted one. We, we can't really afford to. It's, it's kind of, we're struggling. And so they push one of the children off the cliff. And that's what it's like to be the surviving child of an abortion because you have, there's obviously going to be some feelings of resentment, um, maybe mistrust sometimes with uh, your parents. And the only thing that I would say that is kind of different is the PTSD isn't quite like often when you think of P PTSD, there's a moment, there's a, a time in life that people can point to a traumatic event. Like if they have dreams about that, it's about an event and it's very concrete. Whereas if you have a, a sibling that you lost to abortion, it's kind of this like lifelong and drawn out. There's no specific time. Um, and if you have dreams, they're kind of more, theoretical and um it's very interesting what siblings experience it and, and I think it it is very specific too and it like I know my ministry is very specific but I think it's very much needed and a lot of the research that I'm doing is helping me understand what I was going through in 2016 and even years after the the following years were still just as hard because I felt so burdened by that loss. But thankfully moving out of speaking full time, I know I'm speaking now um, and it still is hard sometimes. That has been a healing experience. Um, seeking counseling, going through my program, doing the research, having words for what I was going through. That's all been super duper helpful. But the thing that I think has helped me the most is that that day that I told you about when I found out about my aborted sibling, my co-director, Alex, that I talked about, was the one that picked me up from the airport. And she, you know, she was just super fun. She's one of my best friends. Hey, how was it? Did you have fun? How was Vegas? And I, I told her, you know, all the other things that happened and how much fun I had. And then I was like, but, you know, also I found out that I have an aborted sibling. And she just, right, she like stopped in her tracks and said, oh my gosh, how are you? And to have someone speak to me with such compassion and love and empathy. And she has always done that because over the course of three and a half years was when I found out all of my story. And she was walking with me 
the whole time. That was that that is the most healing thing in my life. A lot of us can feel the same way. Like even if you didn't lose a sibling to abortion, that's what even this way is all about is, is trying to be that presence that Alex was to me. Even though she never had an aborted sibling, she still could offer compassion and empathy to me. Compassion literally means to suffer with, right? When we think of passion, Jesus's passion, that's his suffering, his greatest suffering. Compati means with, so compassion, suffer with. That's what Alex was for me. And that's what Even This Way hopefully will be to other siblings. If you go to my website, actually, eventhisway.org, um, you can see a lot of other people's stories um, like mine. And you can see some similarities. There's, there's a lot of interesting things about having an ab aborted sibling. Um, one of them is kind of just like knowing in the back of your head. I don't know if it's like genetic memory. I don't know. I don't know what it is. It's some weird thing, but siblings just kind of know. They know in the back of their head. Um, sometimes people have dreams, like one of uh, one of my sibling friends. Um, she gave me this necklace, actually. It has my sibling's initials on it. She had, her sister had a dream about um, a child who was, who was in heaven with their grandfather who passed away. And she said, mom, isn't that so weird? Like that child I know was my sister. I don't know how, but I know that that's my sister. And then her mom proceeded to tell her and her, my friend about her abortion. And it was, it, it just can be such weird experiences like that. What can you do? What can you do in someone's life? Well, if they have a story like mine, be a compassionate ear, be an empathetic ear, ask them how they're doing. Um, my friend who knew that I was, Jenna, the one I talked about, she knew I was suffering and she still was herself. She still was, you know, her bubbly, joyful self. And even though I wasn't there and I had, didn't have the energy to be, to be joyful and playful and laughing, she still was herself. And that was a consolation to me. Um, eventually I was able to like laugh again. Prayer helps. I, I really think that the prayers of the pro-life movement saved my life when my mom was in her crisis pregnancy because she had no one. I mean, she had no one uh, here in the States. And, you know, her family left her, my biological father left her at that time. So I really think that the prayers of the pro-life movement saved my life and that the people that I speak to now are the people that saved my life. So I believe that if you're a person of prayer, I hope that you believe that too, because prayer is outside of time, because it's a conversation with God who's outside of time. So I, I really believe that. And uh, I want to devote my voice, uh, singing and everything, to the pro-life movement, to honoring my mom for choosing life and honoring my sibling who wasn't so fortunate. That's what I'm doing with Even This Way. I encourage you, Molly kind of gave a wonderful commission, I guess. I encourage you to use your gifts for the movement. Um, one thing that I talk about often is that 77% of people fear public speaking. And that's my favorite thing. I love public speaking. I am a performer. I've always been on the stage. I'm very comfortable there. And only 20% of people fear death. <laughs> so that means more people at a funeral would rather be dead in the casket than giving the eulogy. Sometimes people look at me and my story and the things that I get to do and they say, oh, well, I could never be that because I hate public speaking. Well, that's not the only thing that we need in the pro-life movement. We need so much more. My sister had her own crisis pregnancy at 19 years old. And when she told me, it made me cry. Things always make me cry. That moment, the pro-life voice that I needed to be was we can do this. And that was the first, those were the first words that came out of my mouth when my 19 year old sister was pregnant um, in her second semester of college. I said, we can do this. Do you want me to make you an appointment at the pregnancy center? 
And she said yes. And her and her boyfriend went and they cried at how many resources were available to them and they didn't even know that. I know there's wonderful things that I can do as a speaker, but there are wonderful things that I get to do in my family. Hopefully, you know, I'm trying my best um, to be a, a voice of life. I, I try to see everybody as created in God's image, even when I don't agree with them. Right now, one of the cool things that I'm doing is I'm the board president for, of Rehumanize International. And they're a secular consistent life ethic group. And what consistent life ethic to me is just what it means to be Catholic for me. To honor every single human life, no matter what. <laughs> no matter what. I mean, if they're in the womb, if they're in prison, with the color of their skin, if they have a disability, all of those things, every single human life matters equally and ought to be treated as such and deserves to be free from discrimination and violence. And that's that's basically the crux of what Rehumanize does. And that puts me in very interesting circles, right? Because I'm very Catholic. I was a theology teacher last year, but also a lot of my friends are LGBT and trans and, and have very different lifestyles than me, but we still agree that life is precious and should be treated as such. And I think one thing that's needed in the pro-life movement is that kind of inclusivity because violence isn't going to end unless everybody thinks that violence needs to end. And for me, that means ending abortion. That is my main issue. Um, my second issue is probably the death penalty. And that's, that's just what it means for me to be Catholic and ending those violences. What Molly was talking about, I would like to echo to envision life in the ways that you can in your own family, in your communities, in your schools, and using the gifts that you have. Whenever I was doing pro-life youth education, I would tell my students, like, we need pro-life speakers, but we also need pro-life bakers. Um, because I remember a, a baker who, like, donated <laughs> for our events all the time. Pro-life florists. Uh, we had someone who would donate their flowers to our um, our fundraising events. Pro-life chefs. Um, I'm from South Louisiana, so best food in the world. People would donate their food all the time for our events. It was so wonderful. And we had a pro-life dentist on our board. We had, I mean, whatever you are, just be pro-life in it and, um, and affirm life. And I think that's exactly what it means to envision life. So thank you, Bill, so much for being, for letting me be here. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening in. And uh, shout out to my cousin, Audrey, who is here. Um, also, Molly, you're awesome. I love you. <laughs> we're, we're about to bring Molly back in here, so. Uh, okay, good. Great. Well, thank you so much. Uh, that was great, Krista. Could you clarify a little bit more the name, even this way, and where that came from? I didn't say it. Thank you for bringing it up. I meant to. Um, so when I, I am still at Divine Mercy University, I'm about three quarters way done uh, with my program. But uh, one of the first things that we had to do for our capstone project was write uh, basically our vision statement or something like that. And I wrote what is now my mission statement for even this way. And I remember sitting with it and thinking, this is my, this is my mission statement. This is what I want to do. I want to bring uh, forgiveness to families, compassion to communities and healing to the hurting. Those are, those are the three things that I want to do. And I was like, okay, now I need to name this thing. I need to name this organization. I've been thinking about it for four years and I've never had a name for it. Um, and I was singing in my head, I think I was leaving at the time, I think I had like nine jobs or something. And I was leaving one of my jobs. I was so delirious. And I, I was singing in my head, you are perfect in all of your ways. You are perfect in all of your ways. But then I thought to myself, is he? 
I was like, do I really believe that? Do I really believe that God is perfect in all of his ways? Because that was uh, like, I was kind of recovering from my depression. I was like coming up from it and starting to believe in goodness again. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, even this way, even this way, God is perfect in his way. And I was like, even, I was like, but even me, like, is he perfect in, in his way in creating me? Like, because I, I've, have existential symptoms and like always am wondering if I'm should be alive and yes even this way even in your life even this way I was like okay but God like I understand that thank you like intellectually I believe that but like I'm so messed up and I'm so flawed and unworthy to do this work and he was like then even this way and it was like the answer to all of those and it was like, this is a crooked path. I have a crooked path. The thing, like, my whole life has been a crooked path. But I need to even it. I need to make make it straight again. And uh, and that's that's where that name comes from. <laughs> that's beautiful. Thank you. That's so awesome. And Christy, you're so cool. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, you got me crying a little bit. And, uh... I'm crying. It's okay. <laughs>